From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's a shortage of tradespeople, like electricians. Today, what's behind that shortage and a creative way to attract young people? Let's just say it involves an escape room. We wanted to find a way to to make the trade sexy to high school students. Later, there's been a lot of hype about the discovery of a planet that could support life, why we should be circumspect, plus some wacky beer recipes ahead of the Great American Beer Festival. And after Boulder photographer Francesca Woodman killed herself, a friend kept some of her mementos locked away for decades. After she died, for me, there was this weird feeling that if I never opened the box that... It was all alive in there. Now some of the contents are part of an exhibition at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our lives would pretty much grind to a halt without them. Electricians, plumbers, car mechanics. And it's getting harder to find folks to fill those jobs. So businesses have to get creative when it comes to recruiting. We're going to start with CPR's Andrea Dukakis, who reports on one Colorado company's unique approach. For Denver company Encore Electric, desperate times mean desperate measures. That's why the company parked a souped-up trailer outside a boys and girls club in Denver. We wanted to find a way to make the trade sexy to high school students. Encore Electric is an electrical contractor that does highly technical projects. The company is so hard up for workers that it built this trailer, they call it a mobile escape room, that parks outside schools and places like the local boys and girls club. To get out, the person has to solve a series of challenges. In this case, kids complete four tasks dealing with electricity. They have to wire an outlet, then a light, a fan, and a three-way switch. It means plugging the correct wires into the right holes. All right, so this is, I'm going to try to wire a fan. So I get the red wires (coughs) and then... The white wire. Today, the kids aren't scheduled to come until later in the afternoon. So it's a chance to try it out. David Scott, who's Encore Electric's human resources director, supervises and offers a bit of help along the way. Okay. And then I have two green wires and three green holes. Oh, I'm stumped. And one plugs right into the back of the other. And then we're going to see, oh, the fan went on. Once the kids successfully complete all four tasks, they get a message. Congratulations. You have exited the room. Now come outside and let's talk about entering your career. The hope is some of the young visitors will leave wanting to be the electricians of tomorrow. The trailer debuted in late August, and about 500 kids of all ages have checked it out so far. About 50 have asked the company for more information. It's a bit gimmicky, but Encore's David Scott says the goal is to fill a depleting pipeline of workers. There has been a retirement of older electricians in our case, and as these older electricians are retiring, there's not enough students coming up that want to get their hands dirty and get in the trades. Scott says a lot has to do with the view that the only path to success is college. For years, we faced the college for all mentality, and that mentality has led to a skills gap in the construction and other trades. Brandon Marshall is helping get the room ready for the onslaught of kids. 
Marshall's in his second year of a four-year apprenticeship with Encore Electric. He never pictured becoming an electrician. He thought he'd go to college. But he recently moved back to Denver and saw a debt-free way to a good job. There are more opportunities within the trades than I was ever aware of prior. And you have a mind that you think works in that way? I think uh, as I'm in it longer, it becomes more and more mechanical, but I wasn't naturally amazing at it or anything like that. Marshall makes $15 an hour. In a couple of years, once he gets his license, he'll make a starting salary of $62,000 a year. I think they're comparable to any higher level position after a four-year college degree. And Marshall says, unlike a lot of college students, he already knows what he wants to do and will be trained to do it. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Now, the trades didn't always take a back seat in school. Remember shop class? Gosh, I had a friend who learned to inspect airplanes in high school. That was in Ohio. Kids once fixed cars in class. Think the musical Grease. This car could be systematic. Hydromatic. Why well, could be grease lightning? Grease lightning. Get some overhead lifters and four bell quads, oh yeah. Keep talking, keep talking. Okay, so why did vocational schools lose their prominence and is that changing? We're gonna get some perspective from the head of Emily Griffith Technical College, Stephanie Donner, who is trying to create a better pipeline for young people. Hi Stephanie. Hi, Ryan. This is fascinating. If you want a construction job in Colorado, there are about 4,000 advertised job openings. Electrical work, 3,000. And another 3,000 jobs for maintenance and repair workers. How much of this is because of Colorado's low unemployment rate? And how much of this is that there are simply not uh, skilled workers in these fields? So I think Mr. Scott, in the segment that we just listened to, actually hit the nail on the partial head, which is that we have an aging skilled workforce and we do not have an emphasis on training in high school and young adults like that we used to, um, for example, in the movie clip that you just played. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, One answer, I suppose, is just pay people more. They'll be attracted to those fields. These fields actually pay quite well. Um, I think that what you just heard in the apprenticeship example that we just listened to is it's a pathway to an incredibly well-paying job, even more higher salaries than lots of students who graduate with bachelor's degrees. Not sure payment is the is the challenge. Is the challenge now? I can understand that the job pays well immediately out of the gate, but is there the potential for income growth over a lifetime? I mean, isn't that something to consider as well? I think many of these companies, um, American Association of General Contractors and others, are trying to create building blocks whereby just because you come in at an entry level, there is a ba- ability to scale and grow into management and other ways to increase those wages. Okay. Is there a stigma then around the trades? We heard about that college for all mentality. I think of parents who want their kids to do better than they did. And for so many of them, that's about sending their kids to college. How do you begin to change the perception? Well, I think if you're privileged enough to go to a four-year university and potentially subject yourself to the trillion-dollar student debt crisis that we currently have in this country, 
um, and potentially get a job that actually yields a higher salary, then maybe that's a good choice. Many students don't learn like that. Many students also um, want to get to a higher paying job quicker, don't have the luxury of taking four years to do that. And so I think that working with industry and ensuring that students know that they have a pathway to these good jobs, um, but also to make a meaningful impact in the needs that exist out there. We started the conversation talking about the skilled labor shortage. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. I wonder how those conversations might be reflected in classrooms even or with school counselors, you know. And I think they're starting. There's a push towards getting more students interested in starting those skilled opportunities in high school. And with that, kids are getting exposed like through this escape room, which is really cool, and seeing that they can actually have a skill. I think what we as educators can do is ensure that at each one of those steps, if you're able to get a skilled credential, that at some point along the way, it could articulate or translate for credit, like many of these apprenticeship programs do today. So you are at the same time getting certification in a particular area and credit for school. Exactly. And it's not for everyone, but at least you have something in your back pocket if you decide later on that you're either in a financial or a life position that you can go to a two or four year university, that you already have a running start and that none of the skills that you gained, you would have to try to learn over. You're a trade school. Emily Griffith trains people for jobs in welding, car repair, construction, among others. There are numerous vocational schools in this state, but what much more do you think Colorado needs to do? I think we need to work closer with our industry partners uh, to ensure that we have enough um, recruitment and pipeline funding together also with our public schools to ensure that we are um, serving as many students as we can. So what would that look like? In other words, you go to a company that does a lot of electrical contracting and you say, I want you to help spend money on a program at this middle school, this high school? Or this trade school. And then we work with our four-year universities and we say we want to make sure that anyone who comes through this program is able to articulate the credit into your school at a later time. I know that you have said elsewhere that what is old is new again, referring to how society has viewed trade jobs over the last century. Will you, will you talk just a little bit about the, those cultural changes? Well, we used to be in a society that very much valued those trades, um, and we needed them for our growth and for our progress. And here we are sitting in the exact same situation. We have a workforce that is aging, and we're not training enough people. And so... Emily Griffith sits in this unique place in education whereby we used to be in a vocational school that people didn't always choose first. Uh -huh. And now we see four-year universities trying to give credentials and certificates in the exact same way that we do. So, of course, I think that everything that's old that was vintage is now very cool again, which is Emily Griffith Technical College. Is there still shop class widespread? What do you know about the trades in traditional High schools, for instance, in Colorado. So what I know for Denver Public Schools is there's an increased interest in having students get college credit while learning in high school, whether it's at a facility like Emily Griffith 
or on the actual campuses. So across the state of Colorado, there's a lot of interest in technical skills gained on campus at high schools, um, but all the while ensuring that that could articulate for credit either at a trade school, a technical college, or at a two- or four-year university, community college. So there's immediately that kind of transfer. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Ryan. Stephanie Donner is executive director of Emily Griffith Technical College in Denver. We talked about the enormous need in this state for tradespeople. Astronomers have spotted water in the atmosphere of a planet that could have temperatures like Earth's. The discovery sparked headlines like, First Water Detected on Potentially Habitable Planet. But University of Colorado professor Doug Duncan is throwing some cold water on these claims. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Nice to see you again, Doug. Hello again, Ryan. Uh, We'll get to your skepticism in a minute. But first, uh, this is planet K218b. Uh, It's only 120 light years away, practically our next door neighbor in space terms. Uh, the sun in its sky is red, not yellow, like ours. Describe what we know of this planet. Sure. Well, since the planet passed in front of the star, the Kepler spacecraft measured how much the light dimmed, and that tells us the size right away. It's a very delicate measurement, you know, because a planet is so small in front of a star. Nevertheless, we now know this planet is a little less than three times the diameter of the Earth. Okay, larger than the Earth. Then. And because we see the dip reoccurring every 33 days, we know it's in a pretty short orbit. It's closer to its star than Mercury is to the Sun. But the star is quite a bit smaller than the Sun. It's smaller and cooler. That's why it looks red instead of kind of yellowish in mm. the sky. And it's enough cooler that when you're um, half the distance, say, from Mercury to it, you're actually in a pretty nice zone. You're in what we call the habitable zone. Not too hot, not too cold, just about right. A Goldilocks temperature. Exactly. And I guess the idea is that there is water in some form on this planet. Well, we were able to observe the water. And the way you do that is is pretty interesting, delicate. So imagine a planet in front of a star that you're looking at. A little bit of the light from that star is going to pass through the atmosphere of the planet on the way to the Earth. And uh, whenever light goes through uh, an atmosphere, some of the light is absorbed. It changes the spectrum, the different colors that we observe. And we compare the spectrum to something on the Earth. So if we see a line, a set of lines, uh, the colors in the spectrum that look like hydrogen, we know there's hydrogen. Mm. We've seen a little bit of water. And so we know there's water in the atmosphere of this planet. Okay, so Kepler is telling us a lot. This subtle dimming is actually not so subtle. It tells us a lot about what's on a planet. Uh, All right, in the habitable zone, we see there's water. The headlines have been very exciting, Doug Duncan, and they call the planet Earth-like, potentially habitable. But this is where you say things went off the rails a bit. What, What are people missing? Well... So it's actually quite fun and interesting what you can do to analyze what this planet is like. So we know how big it is. Yeah. But with big telescopes down in Chile, we also measured the motion 
of the star that the, the little planet is going around. And the more massive the planet, the more it pulls the star back and forth. And so we've measured the mass also. Ah, so is it a dense planet, for instance? Well, is a see, that's that the you... great thing. It's, it's got a volume. Uh, it's about three times the size of the Earth, I said, but that's the width and the height and the, and the depth. So overall, it's about 20 times our volume, but it's only nine times the mass. So it can't be rocky like the Earth. It's too light. So when you do an analysis like that, even though you can't see it, you know that the planet, it, it really isn't like a big Earth. I, I would say it's more like a small Neptune. Does that mean it's gaseous? Like there's it, actually nowhere to step? Uh, it, at least a lot of it is gas. You know, maybe deep down in the core, like, like with Neptune and Uranus, there might be something rocky, but most of it is probably gas. Okay. So it's not like there would be a place where you could build a coffee shop or a tanning salon. I don't think <laughs> so, no. <laughs> All right. And, and this plays with the notion of habitability. It is... Is rock surface an important element of habitability? What do we look for in that, the... Well, that's a great question. Um, and the exobiologists and the astrobiologists constantly argue that on the Earth, yeah. all the life we know is either on a solid surface or even sometimes within. You know, we've even found life down in the Earth. But I don't believe we've ever found life that, that formed and lives floating. Floating. Yeah. So it's hard to imagine how that would work. Okay. And could there be seas or lakes? I guess not, because there would be nothing as a bed for any of those. You know, if, they, if there are, they're way, way, way down inside the planet. I don't think you can at this time be absolutely sure yes or no on that question. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're having a regular space science conversation with Doug Duncan, astronomer at CU Boulder. Uh, Doug, when headlines called this planet potentially habitable, that wasn't language reporters had entirely made up. Uh, they sounded a lot like statements that the scientists had made. Uh, one said, and I quote, it has an atmosphere and it has water in it, making this planet the best candidate for habitability that we know right now. Was that perhaps hyperbole? And if so, what led, you know, serious scientists to say something like this? Well, you know, scientists, most of us anyway, are human. And so when you make a discovery after working on it for years, you do get very excited about it. Now, there was an extra complication on this discovery, and that is uh, a lot of the data was from the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, listeners might find it interesting. If you get to be chosen to use Hubble, okay. and there's 10 times the applicants as are accepted. You are essentially applying for time to use Hubble. Exactly. And only one out of 10 gets the time. But when you do, when you get your data, after one year, it becomes public. And all the other astronomers can use it. For that matter, non-astronomers can log in and look at the data from Hubble. So it's sort of open source democratizing of anything that comes through Hubble. Right. But you also see here, I think, in this story, the limit of, of total open source because the astronomers were racing to complete their analysis before a year was done. And then they heard that another group of astronomers was going to use the data and publish their interpretation of it. So it was a little bit rushed. You know, rushed news is never as good as careful news. And one reason I get my own news from NPR is we usually take the time to find two or three sources for the same story 
to corroborate, it's not too excited. Yes, we'd rather be right than first. Uh, We did not pay you for that lovely compliment, (laughs) Doug Duncan. Thank you for giving it to us. Meanwhile, the hunt for planets with life goes on. Um, Kepler has been decommissioned, correct? It has. Yeah. But the Europeans are building a next-generation telescope that I understand is quite massive. Well, remember, this discovery was a combination of space and from the ground in Chile. Yeah. And I just got back from Germany, and I saw the latest of the giant telescope. All the European countries are cooperating. What a great idea. And they're building a telescope where the tube, just the tube, is 20 stories high. Imagine a 20-story skyscraper being able to point and investigate the universe. It's, and precisely where is this? It's in Chile, yeah. where the skies are very clear and, and sharp. And uh, I think everything is great about the telescope except the name. Right now, it's called the Extremely Large Telescope, <laughs> so, which well, it certainly is. accurate. Yeah. So, so you, you went to check this out? Uh, I was there for a conference on the teaching of astronomy. But since it's the headquarters, you see, not all the astronomers live in Chile. The, the, the operating headquarters, the data analysis is all in Germany. Interesting. So that's, that's why I was there. But the future is looking quite good. I think there's a good chance that in our lifetimes, we may detect something very interesting that indicates life. After all, if we ever saw oxygen in the spectrum of a planet, oxygen on the Earth all came from life. You know, the first billion years, the Earth had no oxygen in the atmosphere. So from even a long ways away, if one saw a planet with oxygen, that would be really interesting. Water is interesting. Oxygen would be even more. What will be the demand for this incredibly powerful and large telescope? Oh, it'll be way oversubscribed, I'm sure. Uh Um, Just like Hubble. But they work together. NASA's chief scientist said just days ago that he thinks we're close to finding signs of life on Mars. Uh, but if we do, the world isn't ready for it. I what, what do you make of that? I think that's a really important comment. And I've actually discussed it with my students in the class I teach up at CU Boulder. In fact, I have this discussion at the end of every semester of astronomy. Now that our technology enables us per- potentially to find life out there in, in your lifetime, what do you think? And my class splits about 50-50. Half of them say, hmm, doesn't mean much to me. It's a long ways away. It's not going to affect what I do every, wa- every day. But the other half says, oh, wow, that would have profound philosophical and religious And boy, I would think about that and it might change the way I think about my own personal place in the universe. And would we perceive them as friend or foe? Uh, And how special are we and where do we fit in the big picture? I think the big picture will get much bigger when we find some other life out there. Thanks, Doug. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder joins us regularly to talk about space science. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with some of the tastiest backstories behind the craft beer industry. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. I'm a big fan of CBD. But I'm not like all up on all the data. Oh yeah, I saw it in Walgreens looking next to the cough syrup I was going to get for my kids. CBD. 
D. Those three magical letters are the source of a lot of curiosity and a lot of cash these days. On the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News, we take a long, hard look at CBD. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After their classmate was murdered, a high school robotics team honored him by competing one last time with the robot he helped create. The Kendrick Castillo Memorial Tournament took place over the weekend, hosting teams from Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah. Producer Natasha Watts was there with the group from STEM School Highlands Ranch, where Castillo was a senior. Team Impulse prepared for competition in the corner of a gym crammed with computers and tools. The group made last-minute changes to their three-foot-tall robot named McGripple, an inside joke spearheaded by Castillo himself. If we tighten this screw, this bolt more, that would keep it from wobbling as much. Right, because then it can't feel Each team's robot had to move discs and orange balls across a playing field and deposit them in containers shaped like spaceships. Team Impulse faced some early difficulties. So you can get close to it and then lift the arm while you're in contact. We no? can't lift the arm right now. Why not? Because it's not working. Here's senior Katie Butler. Our computer was very low on battery, so we had to use my computer, which had not been set up previously to be used on the field, so we had to adjust some settings on it. During the match, we've been working on a manipulator most of this time, and it's not quite ready yet, so. After all seeding rounds finished, team captains gathered in front of the crowd to hear if they would continue on to the semifinals. The top four teams selected their allies. Team 1619 and Team 4293 would like to invite Team 4418 and Impulse. But after two tough rounds, Team Impulse was eliminated from continuing on to the finals. Still, Coach Jack Graber says the experience was worth it. The first round, we had won but got overturned because of a foul call. And then this last one... We just got outscored and out defense, but it was super exciting and a great end to this competition. I'm Natasha Watts, CPR News. That is an update on the robotics team from STEM School Highlands Ranch. Kendrick Castillo, a lead member, was killed in the May attack on that school. The team competed in the Kendrick Castillo Memorial Tournament Saturday using the robot he helped design. The Great American Beer Festival starts Thursday in Denver with exotic brews and more than 60,000 beer lovers packing the Colorado Convention Center. It reflects what a hotbed Colorado is for craft beer. For a preview of the event and a picture of the industry right now, the Colorado Sun's John Frank is here. He has a new guidebook called Beer Lovers Colorado, Best Breweries, Brew Pubs, and Beer Bars. And uh, welcome to the program, John. Thanks for having me. There are a lot of great origin stories behind breweries in Colorado. Uh, I understand that one of your favorites is in Glenwood Springs. Tell us about this. It is. It's Casey Brewing and Blending, and the head brewer owner is Troy Casey. And it's, it's just a fascinating story behind this brewery because he grew up in Coors. His dad is a brewing manager at Coors Brewing, and he worked over there too. 
you know, making high quality beer day in, day out, very precision based brewing that they do. But lots of it, of course. And lots of it, yes. And what he did is went the exact opposite direction. He went out to Glenwood Springs, opened up Casey Brewing. And what they specialize in is sours and saisons made with microbes and sour bacteria with fruit added. Each one is different. Each is so interesting. It involves a lot of blending, a lot of patience and waiting for the beer to come together. And it's just the exact opposite of what you're going to get in a Coors Light can. You know, I think so often we think of a tension between craft and the big breweries. But the point is that it is a community and there's probably folks who go back and forth in, in you know, this industry. It's true. And Coors Deserves a lot of credit for laying the groundwork for such a huge, robust $3.3 billion brewing industry in Colorado. You can go from the beer they made and the brewers they trained that are now working elsewhere in the industry to just the hop farms that they helped establish out in western Colorado that now supply craft brewers all over the state. Okay, you use the term sour for for a type of beer. Tell us about sours, a little of the vocabulary. Sure. Yeah. Well, sour beers are becoming more and more popular and what sour denotes is just how it's made. It's made with microbes, with uh, bacteria and bretomyces and some yeast. And it's this kind of mixed culture that adds a different flavor to beer. Because beer is traditionally made with yeast. But when you brew with these microbes, it gives off the sour flavors. And they can vary from just a light tartness like a lemonade to a super puckering sour like vinegar almost. Mm. And the the range in between and the hops you add or the fruit you add, all are different. It's just a fascinating exploration. There's a lot of crossover with wine drinkers, folks who like Pinot Grigio and such, find a lot of similar flavors and sours. I've converted a few of my family members that way. <laughs> uh, let's talk about somebody else you profile in the book. You call him the mad scientist of the Colorado beer world. Who's this? This is James Howitt. He's the brewer at Black Project Spontaneous and Wild Ales in Denver. And he does something uh, that a few other brewers in Colorado did when they first started, and now it's becoming more popular. He makes spontaneously fermented beers. What this is, is you would brew the wort. You know, you brew a beer, and where a normal brewer would add in the cultivated yeast, he opens the window and lets the natural microbes and yeast and bacteria and whatever else is in the air float in, land on the beer, essentially inoculate it, and it starts this Petri dish of beer. And it's just fascinating because what it does is it adds this terroir element to the beer. Because wherever you brew a spontaneous beer, it's going to taste a little bit like the microbes or the yeast in the air of that region. So terroir is a term that I normally associate with wine. It has to do with soil. It has to do with climate, that sort of specific region a wine comes from. Uh, you're talking almost about the bacteriological terroir of a beer. There's a lot of science in beer. It's absolutely fascinating. And, and how we perceive beers are very much based on memory and brain scientists. And how we make beer is just this microbiology experiment, you know, day in, day out. And it takes a lot of artistry to get it right, particularly when you're making some of the sours or spontaneous beers, because they're just so difficult. You're working with nature to make it beer. We're talking with John Frank about his guide, Beer Lovers Colorado, Best Breweries, Brew Pubs, and Beer Bars. Uh, what are some beers coming to the Great American Beer Festival, uh, I'll note from all over the country, uh, that you're curious about? There's one beer that just really stands out that I, I feel like everyone needs to try, and it's going to be love or hate. Uh, okay. It is called a hot sauce barrel-aged taco goza. 
And this is made by Weldworks Brewing in Greeley. I'll break this down, unpack it for you, I guess. Yes, please do. So a Goza, let's start with the type of beer. A Goza, it's G-O-S-E, is a German sour wheat. Just lightly sour, nice and tart, very light, um, very drinkable. And so what they did with this beer is they added taco seasoning. (laughs) (laughs) Much like the El Paso packet you would sprinkle onto ground beef. Yeah. And... It's exactly what it tastes like. To me, because I grew up eating those kind of tacos, it just straight tastes like meat. It is fascinating. It tastes like taco meat. And then they took that beer, which was enough already, right, and aged it in hot sauce barrels. Oh, my God. I'm not sure I knew that hot sauce came in barrels. Some hot sauces age it in barrels, or you can age it in barrels. And so they put all that together in a beer, and it is crazy. Is it spicy? Like really it is, spicy? The barrel-aged version is spicy, and the original one just tastes just like taco meat. <laughs> and you say that this comes out of Greeley? Yes. Wildworks Brewing out of Greeley is one of the um, best breweries in the state, one of the most nationally known. And it, it represents a trend I discovered in writing this book, is that while Denver is very much the beer hub of Colorado, there's a lot of small towns that are becoming their own beer hubs. And it's the great beer is not just concentrated in the city centers anymore. You've got great beer in Lafayette with Odd 13, Casey out in Glenwood Springs, and Weldworks in Greeley. I mean, it's not, uh, well, it might just be poetic that there is a beer from Greeley that tastes like meat. That just seems so apropos. It does seem. What is this Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout? This is a Colorado classic beer made by Wincoop in downtown Denver, Governor Hickenlooper's former brewery. They make a beer and yes, with bull's testicles, Rocky, uh-huh. Mo- Rocky Mountain oysters. They uh, fry them up uh, on the grill and throw them into the beer. It's an oyster stout, which is, means it's a stout with a little salinity to it, a little salt. And uh, by adding the bull's testicles, it definitely adds a uh, <laughs> savory element to the beer. Thankfully, though, it doesn't taste like bull's it testicles. Does, okay, it seems more gimmicky than actual flavor. Do you it, think that's it true? It is. And a lot of craft beers <laughs> like that. There's just a lot of innovation, experimentation, and craziness to it that makes it a lot of fun. I'm curious what competition or crossover you see between beer and marijuana in Colorado. Just wrote a column for the Colorado Sun about this, and it, it's becoming more and more of a crossover. For years, the brewing industry really worried what mar- legal recreational marijuana would do. Like if somebody had a different substance. Exactly. You know, would people buy marijuana instead of a six pack that night? And what they're seeing is so far in the first five years here, there hasn't been much of an effect. As well, one source told me, stoners still buy six packs. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and that's where we're at. But what we're seeing is much more of a blending now where craft brewers are getting into CBD and THC uh, seltzers and beers. So they're seeing this as a growth industry. And as one person told me, they, they see this uh, cannabis drinks as, you know, as big as beer one day. You mentioned seltzers. I feel like I see hard seltzers everywhere. Is that really what beer brewers should be concerned about? Well, what you're seeing is a lot of beer brewers make them. <laughs> they're jumping into the game. Got it. Uh, Oscar Blues has one through their Wild Basin uh, series that is just uh, very popular and very tasty. And 
so, but yes, it is very much a diversification based on market trends. We're seeing more and more people buy White Claw and other hard seltzers. And what you're also seeing is a lot of younger drinkers, millennials, that just aren't interested in alcohol, just aren't interested in beer. And seltzers is a, a way to reach them with a more health-conscious option because often they're 100 calories or less. Often they have very few grams of sugars. And they're easy drinking at 5%. You're not going to get knocked on your feet by one beer. Mm-hmm. It's dubious, though, to call anything healthful that has alcohol in it. I mean, let's sure. let's just put that into some context. Okay. Uh, you know, I wonder in profiling uh, breweries and brewers, is there a sort of personality type that we're looking at here, people who take on more adventurous kinds of beers? Do you notice a trend? You see a little bit of both. So traditionally... Um Brewers will make what they call flagships, or they're like one good beer, just a solid IPA or lager. And then they moved into very creative beers, whether it's a milkshake IPA, which is an IPA with milk sugar and vanilla and fruit. And so it has this mouthfeel and and taste as like a fruit milkshake. Not everyone's interested in those. So some people are still very much drinking the lagers, the pilsners, which are coming back into trend. These are Budweiser and Coors Light and, and Miller Light style beers. And then some still like the adventurous stuff where you can put the entire kitchen sink into the beer, it seems. Mm-hmm. And what do you notice about those people who are experimenting? They like more adventurous uh, things. It's, it's a little bit like food where folks are always looking for new flavors, new genres, new tastes and flavors. And so beer seems to have infinite bounds because there's so much creativity. In just the last 30 seconds here, the Great American Beer Festival runs Thursday to Saturday. Used to sell out. I understand ticket sales have been a bit slower. Can you say They're why? They're a little slower this year and last year too. It's For two years in a row, they haven't sold out the week uh, leading up to the festival. The organizers at the Brewers Association in Boulder aren't that surprised. They think this is about you know, the max you could top out anyway at about 60,000. So they're optimistic and there's still going to be a lot of beer there for the rest of us. John Frank, reporter at the Colorado Sun. His new book is Beer Lovers Colorado. The Great American Beer Festival starts Thursday. There's a storyline I hear sometimes in the art world. An enormously talented person dies in relative obscurity, and then someone discovers their masterpieces. And it's the story of photographer Francesca Woodman, who was raised in Boulder. Nearly 40 years after her death, she gets her first major museum show in her home state. Most of her photographs feature herself, says the director of the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver, Nora Burnett Abrams. I don't know that I would describe them exactly as self-portraits. Many of the photographs feature her body, but they're not really coming from a place of self-study. She's really using her body like an object, an object to be pushed and pulled and manipulated in lots of different ways. You'll see her body cropped in unusual and kind of unexpected poses, and she spent a lot of time kind of exploring her craft outside in Boulder, particularly at the Boulder Cemetery. And so there are a number of photographs that we have where she is interacting with some of these almost Gothic-like headstones. Abrams curated this show. She joins us along with one of Francesca Woodman's close friends, a photographer who's gotten acclaim in life, George Lang. And welcome to you both. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks. The objects and photographs in this show are from your personal collection, George. I wonder what's the most precious thing for you from this kind of time capsule? 
I kept a box from the time that I was at RISD. This All, is the Rhode Island School of Design where you both went to school, right, correct? Right. And in it, I kept my correspondences with Francesca. She would send me prints through the mail. I kept pictures that I took of her and those negatives. And also when she left RISD, she left a ton of prints in her loft, and she said, go down and help yourself. So they were all kept in a box for 40 years. And for me, what's so precious about it is that it's so much a part of her life that has not really been shared. There are the first pictures that people have probably seen of her smiling and skipping around her her studio and just having fun and really enjoying the process of taking pictures and just hanging out as friends. Why did you hold on to these objects for so long? After she died, for me, there was this weird feeling that if I never opened the box, that it was all alive in there. I know that sounds strange, but that's how it felt to me. And it was also just so emotional around what had happened that I wasn't ready to open the box And then I realized that I really wanted it to be shared in the spirit of how she lived. And so much had gone out in the world under the cloud of how she passed away. How she passed away was by suicide at age 22. Why do you think people should know about her work, Nora? In many ways, she is kind of pushing against the boundaries of her medium. And what I mean by that is a lot of the works show her pushing her feet out of the frame or butting against the boundary of what the camera can capture. She's trying to kind of create a very vital and dynamic space within a medium that is fundamentally flat um, and stilled. And so much of her work has the appearance of a body coming in or maybe disappearing. That kind of depends how you look at the world almost, whether you see a body as emerging from either a landscape or even a piece of architecture. There's some photographs we have where there's a body emerging from what looks like torn wallpaper from the wall. She had a great quote about why she used herself in her photographs. Will you share that with us? Sure. She used to say that the reason why she figures herself so often in her photographs is because she's always available. And her body is her body is always available. She's (laughs) always available. Um, But really what it also speaks to is that she was always working and she was always making and she was always creating that kind of distinction between how she was living her life and the art that she was making was completely fluid. And a lot of what we have in this exhibition really attests to that. She was the daughter of Colorado artists George and Betty Woodman, well-known ceramicists who were devoted to their practice. George, you mentioned that it was fairly rare to see photographs of Francesca Woodman smiling. Was she uh, fundamentally a a tortured soul, do you think? My biggest goal for the exhibit was to show how much fun we had. And my relationship with Francesca was not about, you know... Darkness, commiseration. Not at all. She was silly. There's one thing on the back of the book for the show that is an invitation to tea and maybe ice cream that she wrote on a piece of legal paper and slipped under my door. And she would slip little pieces of rabbit fur under my door to invite me to different things or apologize for something she had done that might have upset me. She would send these pictures. Nora described one of the pictures of a woman who is naked 
emerging from the wallpaper that is peeling. And Francesca sent that to me through the mail. There's a stamp on the back and and the full message. Was there ice cream at the tea party? You know what? I don't remember. But I do remember, you know, she lived in this loft that was the texture and and stage for all of her photographs. So there were lots of broken cups that might have been her mother's who was this amazing ceramicist, but they were all interesting. And they're like, she didn't have a kitchen. So everything was put together and raw. And when you would go to Francesca's, it was almost like this Alice in Wonderland kind of thing, but with all of her objects. We're talking about the life and work of Francesca Woodman, uh, who has a first show in her home state of Colorado some 40 years after her death. George, I wonder if a photography teacher at RISD would look at some of these images and think, you're doing it all wrong, Francesca. You know, there's blur and there's playing with exposure times. And through different eyes, it could be seen as mistaken, not art. When she was doing these pictures, it was an act of discovery. She would have ideas going in, but a lot of it would happen almost by mistake or or playing with ideas. And at RISD, people really had a hard time with it. The teachers, it's not that they didn't understand the technique. I don't think that they understood how profound the work was in the moment there. And there's a picture in the exhibit where she went and pinned herself up on the wall, her hair up next to the pictures like she's a victim of not being appreciated. RISD, again, the Rhode Island School of Design, really a a venerated arts institution. Uh, You have said, I think, uh, elsewhere, George, that her intensity sometimes frightened you, though. When you're around amazing creative people that are actually creating it's a difficult relationship. There are certain friendships that we have. This this friend brings so much to my life, but I can only have one or two of these friends because they're going to make me crazy too because they're very demanding. They're mercurial. They will push and pull you. They will do something and then apologize. And Francesca was that kind of person. I mean, she was so deep into what she was doing. I mean, she was the real deal. And when you're around someone who is the real deal, it is humbling. It is incredibly inspiring, and it can also be difficult. There was a time I think she was upset with some photos that you had taken (laughs) of her. Um, What did she do with those images? Well, we would photograph each other a little bit, and and there's some pictures that I took of her one day that she did not like, and she came back to my darkroom, and she saw them on the light table, and she cut them up. And I then put them back together and projected them in class as these kind of pictures, which she was incredibly angry about. But I, it, it was also my reaction to, to something that she had done that was kind of, in, in a way, crossing the line. But I thought the pictures cut up and put back together were actually more interesting. George, in many ways, Francesca Woodman's images were not pristine. And that is true of how the show is presented, I understand. The way the pictures are exhibited is really different from the way that Francesca's work has been seen before. And most times, mats have been put over her pictures to make them look like these perfectly crafted prints. And what Nora did so brilliantly with this show is she allowed the fixer stains to show and the bent prints and did not close in on that. It's so much closer to the spirit of the way that they were created. And that's what this show really gets at, is the spirit of how the work was created, not 
how it's been seen since her death, not how it has been put out in the art world as these precious objects. Like, this show really gives a feeling. And one of the most extraordinary things is when I went to Francesca's loft after she had left, I took my own pictures of the loft, and Nora created this room from one of my photographs that you're stepping into Francesca's loft and actually walking over the pictures. And it's really special. Well, thanks to both of you for sharing her story. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks. Photographer George Lang with Nora Burnett Abrams, director of the MCA Denver. The show Francesca Woodman, Portrait of a Reputation, runs through April 5th. Finally today, a band that exists in part because of the 2016 election. Guitarist Kelly Palmblad was at a concert election nice when she felt compelled to create an all-female rock group. Spirits was born. The Colorado Springs Band mixes guitar-driven rock with pop influences and ghostly female vocals. All five members of the band sing, which means no single member of Spirits is the star. Drummer Emily Gould and cellist Lisa Show talked about their collaborative nature when Spirits visited our performance studio earlier this year. Even if we don't write the songs, we all get an input on where it goes. If somebody doesn't like a lyric, we all work together on that lyric. So it really is a team effort. We have great equity and mutual support. That is not always the case in bands. Nobody is really trying to drive the band in any direction that anybody else doesn't want to go. And we've all at separate times been looking at a decision or a thought or an idea that was like, well, it would be fine for me, but that's not good enough for the rest of you ladies, so we're not doing it. Uh, Which is a really kind of powerful, protective thing that creates a really, really clear space for us all to work in. Spirits, one of this month's local 303 Spotlight artists chosen by our colleagues at Indy 102.3. The band performs next month in Manitou Springs and in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. We'll be right back.